Welcome, everybody, to the Female Professoriate, um, the podcast where I talk to female academics about their lives and work, the choices and decisions they made to get where they are, and the women who inspire them, and how to empower women at earlier stages in their academic development. Today, I have the great pleasure to uh, be joined by Professor Denise Hawkes. Professor Hawkes is a, a professor of uh, education economics at the University of Greenwich, and she's also the head of the school, um, of the head of department at the uh, Faculty of Business. It's a great pleasure to have Denise today because, well, she's one of the members of the female professoriate at the uh, school of, at the University of Greenwich, which uh, a, a group that we formed this year to um, be able to exchange uh, our uh, views, our ideas, how to support each other, how to support our uh, junior colleagues. And uh, of course, um, uh, Denise is very busy, especially now with uh, all her work uh, at adapting um, the university this new reality that we're all facing and uh, continuing with her uh, everyday work uh, as, um, as a professor of education economics. So um, without further ado, I would like to say welcome, Denise. Thank you. Thank you, Olga. It's lovely to be talking about me um, for a change. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for for joining me. It's um it's very interesting because when I um dig around to um see how to introduce you and uh, well, you know, the kinds of things that your public profile say about you, which hopefully we can uh, discuss that together with um, the the things that don't appear in LinkedIn as well. Um I found that you're a professor of education economics and I the first thing that I did was to type in Google, what is education economics? Because uh, being a lawyer, and even though we sit at the other side of the corridor, uh, well, we used to sit before COVID at the other side of the corridor, I know very little about um, business and economics as disciplines. So the first thing that I would like to ask you, um, Denise, is um, what, what is education economics? What, what do you uh, research? What is the main um, uh, uh, challenge, academic challenge in um, your discipline? So like many areas of economics, what we're really interested in is choices, choices that people make and choices that governments make. And of course, education as an investment, if you think of it as an investment, is an investment in a person. And what will that investment give in terms of what it gives later, whether it's for a person for their salary or whether it's for the country in terms of economic growth and development. So many education economists work across a range of different topics. My own topic is most interested in individual choices choices that we make to continue study past the compulsory years of schooling predominantly into university and the choices that we continue to make when we go into the labour market after university what why do we make those choices how do those choices happen and interestingly they kind of link to my PhD right at the beginning which was looking at the return to education for women and I think that's important because a lot of the models have always been built around being a guy and then stick in a dummy variable as we call it for oh there are women whereas explicitly modeling for women is is not always done in the discipline largely because there's not many of us to do the thinking about what it means to be a woman and so I think my focus is predominantly looking at groups of people who are not the ones who are normally in the model women ethnic minority um, students students from disadvantaged backgrounds um, myself, I'm a first generation at university, 
So I'm very, very interested in the pathways for others and not making them a dummy variable, as we say in the regression stuff, you know, just sticking a variable that says, oh, what's the difference if I'm a woman? Actually modeling it for being a woman or for being from disadvantaged background or whatever. That, that is um, truly fascinating. So in this um, research, um, uh, what are you finding uh, did, uh, in terms of uh, who decides to continue study and why? Do you also look at, you know, the, the uh, it, when you say individual choices, is this uh, mostly from an economic perspective or, uh, you know, a higher acquisitive power, for example, if you go into further education, better prospect of jobs, etc. Or does it also have to do with the insertion of uh, other um, social and psychosocial aspects of um, the individuals um, and personalities and choices? Yeah, so what's been really exciting in the last few years, I've working with another professor, Gabriella Khaleesi at Sussex, and her and we've been building a, a model where we've expanded beyond the traditional labour economics model. So we have human capital that says, if I invest in school, this is how much more wages I get. And that's the dominant model in the field. It's the model that most estimates that you see reported in the press and so on is built on. What we've done with Gabriella is we've extended that model to include things around social capital, cultural capital, what your friendship groups are doing, your social network, and also to look at more of the psychological, the, the things that come from behavioural economics. So what we find when you do that and you extend these models beyond human capital, so I call it human capital plus, is you find that predominantly for women, choices are not always about optimising the salary, but optimising the lifetime ability to work with other things that they know they'll be responsible for, whether it's looking after parents or looking after children or just anything. Women tend to be making degree choices based on an ability to be able to have a flexible work life later, even though they don't know necessarily what that flexible work life will look like. Whereas young men seem to do it based on money, largely. Um, and I took that experiment into the classroom. I actually had to cover teach microeconomics while I was waiting for a new lecturer last year, um, last September. So I thought, I'm going to ask the class, why did you take economics? And what we see is we see predominantly young male students um, talking about money, good job, solid job. Um, and we see women talking about more the love of the subject, the fascination of the subject. And we can see that in the data quantitatively, and I can see that anecdotally with our students. And I guess that when we're talking about post-COVID, what that looks like, what, what in education should we be investing? There is a narrative that's a little scary for me, which is let's find things that are high productivity, high salary. And productivity is just a measure of salary over um, how many hours you work. So it's kind of a, it's related to your salary. We really need to be looking at measures that are more than productivity and salary if we want to know what types of education to invest in. Otherwise, we'll end up with degree programmes predominantly based on um, things that just give you good money, but don't necessarily do more than that.
Mm, very interesting. Uh, and therefore we have, uh, do we have a risk to actually be excluding certain um, types or certain um, segments of the population from women to uh, um, maybe BAME uh, minorities who may also take decisions of how to uh, individual choices of what kind of professions or education to go into based on other factors, not just the uh, you know, predominantly um, until now idea of um, let's get into this sector because it's going to give us more money or more ac social acceptance with, I don't know, the other group of males that are the ones that we admire kind of thing. So would yeah, it, I think there's a risk? high risk of that. I think there's a high risk of that in the sector as a whole, particularly at times when we've seen um, cuts in education spending the cuts always come to things that we perceive as not being high return. Music education, for example. So my dad's a musician and music education pays a high price every time you have financial constraint in education. Mm -hmm. And yet music education is the reason that I'm a good lecturer. And say so, uh, the students seem to think I am anyway. And that's because it's performance related. The ability to, to be able to hold a room doesn't come from my PhD in economics. It comes from all those years of music training that I fought my dad against. And I think that, you know, we do risk when we monetize it in terms of just looking at the human capital model and the return to salary, we, we do risk excluding people um, and we risk making choices like music education just to those who can afford it. And not to those who, you know, to bring talents to the fore that you may not have seen if you don't have them in school. So I'm really keen in that background to say we need to look at choices beyond just the choice around how much money does it give you. And I say that from a discipline that has a very high return to education. So if you look at all those studies that come from the IFS, from Department of Education, economics is the subject to do if you want more money. So it's top of the chart every time but it's not the only reason to take economics and economics gives you the ability to study things around choices and we need to extend those models to include the people who haven't been included before and that includes us as females. Uh, that is that is really interesting and thought-provoking. It's um, it happens as well in law. You know, with Greenwich is right in front of Canary Wharf. So one of the one of the first years, our first year law students um, sometimes come, and you know, this fascination with standing in in Greenwich and looking at those um, big buildings. Most of them are empty now, and uh, and and for many of them, thinking that this law degree might be what's going to give them the, the jump across the river. And uh, unfortunately, and we know this in law, uh, background, the background of our students is very, uh, it, it plays a significant um, uh, role in whether um, they get to uh, big law firms or big uh, banks, etc. Our student population, unfortunately, lacks some some uh, of the um, social uh, uh, demands and this and, and uh, educational demands uh, for that, that kind of labor market wants. And it's very sad to see that we have really fantastic and amazing students, but because they're maybe not at the, some of the uh, bigger universities, they might not be given an opportunity in those sort of environments especially women and, and BAME um, students. So, um, Denise, this is, this is very um, eye-opening for me that I haven't really uh, 
been in contact with this um, discipline before, but how did you decide, tell me a little bit how this all started. How did you decide to um, do your PhD in something that would open up the, to, to the development of concepts such as social capital plus and, and looking at the educational um, uh, economics differently? Yeah, well, ironically, as all positive stories start with a negative. So when I was making GCSE choices, and I'm lucky to be the last of the cohort of the pre-national curriculum, so I didn't have to do science, but I was exploring options to do physics because I really wanted to be a geologist. And the physics teacher told my dad, no way, don't even let her do this. So I picked economics because I'd run out of options. You know, all the things that I didn't like, you cross off, don't you, when you make options choices. And all the things I did like, I'd already put, and he really made it clear not to do physics. Um, so I picked economics. It was a choice between that or politics, and economics sounded a little bit more solid, so I picked economics. And I think from the very first GCSE class, I was lucky to be in a school with GCSE economics. It was just Adam Smith's human capital. It was the division of labor, the fact that workers together can make more than they can on their own really just inspired me. And I'm, you know, being a child of the 80s, seeing the miners' strikes, having a dad who's a little bit of a, well, let's not say a little bit, he is a Marxist. So having a dad who's very, very keen on the people, um, economics just said, well, there was a way of us all working together to make a difference. It's interesting because, of course, at the time, we've got Mr. Thatcher's revolution and Milton Freeman and all these people trying to make it about me and not about we, but it was the we side of economics that really inspired me at GCSE. Um, and so I decided to do for a degree. Um, I picked for the A-levels, I picked for the degree, and it, it is the labour economics. It's about the people. It's the bit of economics that people miss. Um, people tend to think about economics in terms of money. It's more about, it is a social science, looking at choices. Some of those choices are about money but it's about the people that I found most interesting. And I went to UCL for my undergrad, went to Oxford for my master's, just based on the fact that this was absolutely fascinating. And I was lucky to bump into my PhD supervisor. He came to Oxford to do a seminar and I got talking to him afterwards because he was really interested in Jonathan Haskell. And he said, well, had you thought about a PhD? And to be honest, I hadn't. I'd only done the master's because I knew I didn't want to do banking and I'd done all the interviews for the civil service, but that didn't go well. So um, I thought, okay, we'll give this PhD a go. And he was work, he had this data on twins and he wanted to look at human capital model and it just, all the pieces fell in place at the right time. And I'm very grateful to him. He's still a, a really great role model for me because he just reached out and said, had you thought about a PhD? He didn't have to. He'd come to Oxford to present a paper. Why would he talk to me? Um, well, why would I talk to him? And he made the world a difference to me. And he saved my career a second time because when I finished the PhD, I'd finally got that interview at the Government Economic Service for the Office of the Rail Regulator. Nice, stable job. Mum and Dad were going to be happy with that. And... He said, you don't really want to do that, do you? I said, well, I'm not getting anywhere with academia. I'm not getting in. And so he gave me my first RA job. And although I didn't, you know, I was only with him for six months until I found one I really wanted. 
because his economics is much more about the firm level and mine's much more about the person. I found my person job, but and to this day, he is, he's probably the most influential person in my career. It's twice that he's nudged me in a direction that was healthy. Um, and I still talk to him now. I'm very grateful to him for his time. That's, that's great because I was talking to, uh, in my previous podcast, I was talking to Professor Martin Ortega, Julia Martin Ortega, uh, from the University of Leeds. That happens to be my sister, as we, we said in the previous podcast. And, uh, she was talking about her PhD supervisor was, uh, a man. And she was saying, well, actually, I was fundamentally mentored by men. So in her, she always felt empowered and, and very, well uh, placed in a world that was more, uh, mostly men were the ones with the knowledge and women were the ones being empowered. A different experience to others, other experiences that we've had, including mine, in which men are the ones with the knowledge and, and uh, PhD students, female PhD students are the one that makes the photocopies. So um, <laughs> it, 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 seems, it seems that uh, your experience in this case it was very empowering, you know, the, to have this uh, male mentor and, and, and it could, did you see him as a role model as well? Or were you starting already thinking of yourself? Well, you know, where are the females I can model myself or at least um, in this space, who are they and what do they do uh, professionally and maybe personally as well? Yeah, that's quite interesting you say that. I don't think at the time I thought of him as a role model. Um, he probably is, actually. And I still, um, he probably doesn't know that as well, which is quite interesting. I'll maybe share this podcast when you've finished it. Um, but the first real job I got away from my PhD student supervisor was at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies under Heather Joshi. And I think that's the first time I, it dawned on me how few women there were in academia. And what's amazing about Heather was just how much she was determined to change it. So she was the chair of the Women's Committee for the Royal Economic Society. She was at the Women's Budget Group. She introduced me to all of these institutions where women were at the fore of our discipline. She also introduced me to the fact that there were topics that I had not covered at PhD because I'd done economics. I hadn't done female economics. And I don't mean that disrespectfully because it shouldn't be female economics, but the, of course the subject is very driven by men. And it's not until you reach out to the more multidisciplinary side of economics that you find the stuff in feminist economics, that you find the things about women working and their choices around childcare and the things I was writing at the time with Heather and colleagues at CLS. And again, without Heather, I would just be, I would still be producing the same old human capital model running some great models and publishing very well. I published incredibly well with Jonathan in, in the number one journal in economics, but we weren't touching the real nerve because we were still writing the models in the way that everybody would write the models. And mm. what Heather did was she kind of pushed me into that multidisciplinary space. And again, she's definitely an idol of mine. She, she just did everything and still does everything. And I think without her, I would have been a very different economist. I would have been your IFS type, push out mm -hmm. the same numbers and assume that it's all right. And I'm very grateful to her for showing me that there was another way to think. 
That it's very interesting when you say, you know, probably without having taken this uh, path or this uh, outlook, you would, uh, yeah, publish very well and probably in the super mainstream journals, uh, which which you do, but uh, it probably uh, took uh, longer or at least it that it there might not be as much resistance now, but at the beginning probably, uh, or or at least um, I imagine could have been, this idea of, you know, our outlets as well, of people who are trying to um, uh, maybe do some more innovative uh, um, issues. Our outlets are reduced because we, you know, traditional publishing uh, venues, traditional conference uh, as uh, professional associations take longer to catch certain issues, especially well, issues of gender mainstreaming, and and now probably we have uh, uh, we have the same with uh, issues that deal with um, BAME uh, uh, elements that have not been researched before, or actually have not had a space to be more disseminated widely. So, so do, do you feel that um, maybe your career progressed? slower because of this or you just had to uh, uh, push harder or you had the luck to have uh, and, the, and the good fortune of being close to Heather who was probably pushing uh, 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 she sounds like a real great force uh, of pushing yeah. the agenda force is the right word for Heather force is definitely a right word for Heather um, I think the bit that stumbles you and the bit that takes the time to, to recover is when you have to step beyond the great mentor. And that that is that is the crucial, you, you know, and I'm lucky to have had two really stunning mentors in that developmental phase. Jonathan, who made it very, made it very possible to learn the mainstream and to know what the mainstream expects. And in fact, I still admire the mainstream, if I'm frank. I just want it to be everyone's mainstream and not just a select set's mainstream. And then Heather to show me that the world could be different. And I think the problem was, is it then took time for me to work out what it was I wanted when I left that. So when I got my first job at Greenwich, I'm sorry, my daughter keeps appearing in the screen, so I apologise for that. Um, what I wanted from my first job at Greenwich was it took some time to work out who I was. So I've been here before, I was here as a junior lecturer, my first teaching post was at Greenwich. And Greenwich gave me the chance to explore who I was, but it took time. And it took time for two reasons. One, for the reason of the face that keeps appearing, children, I had three children in one ref cycle, although I was still referable. Um, but also because it took time for me to work out I wasn't working on Jonathan's work. I wasn't working on Heather's. What was mine? And that journey takes a while. And I think that's the bit we underestimate in the journey to professor. It took a time to work out that I would be a professor of education economics, not economic demography like Heather, not economics like Jonathan, not social statistics like Ian. Whatever it was, I had to take time to work out what that of was. And I think at the time I rationalised it that because of the kids, that's why it was taking me so long, but I don't think so. I think it's just a journey that we all go on and it takes time to work out who we are as this journey. This is this is fascinating because um, yeah I I agree that you know stepping beyond the mentor it it's so difficult because in 
you know, you have this, at some point you want to be independent. This is it's like a teenager you know, at some point. You want to be independent and, uh, but uh, you know, or at least your mentor knows that uh, um, whether you're ready or not is it's difficult to say in terms of being ready but uh there are some things that when you are on your own first you you just don't have access to you don't have access to big grants because obviously you're you haven't published enough to establish your your uh, scholarship you may not have access to the big publications on your own because nobody knows you and there's a element of how academia works that we can discuss as well for how you know skewed uh, and discriminatory this is as well but in a way it is a little bit like until you find yourself and who you are and and i i loved what you said about being professor of what <laughs> it's so it's so difficult when you in my case i got the human resources letter or saying so what is your title what is your title going to be and i kind of knew that it was going to be international law but I, it's kind of like oh I have to now reassess because it seems as if this is the identity that I'm going to have for the rest of my life now if I don't choose right my title I might not be able to change it but um, yeah having three children on a ref cycle sounds like a bit of a roller coaster uh, so and and uh, it's a uh, it is part of finding your identity. I think for women, we are, you know, we have issues with uh, being able, you know, three children in, in a period, a short period of time does a lot to you physically and emotionally, but uh, also uh, turns you into someone else in terms of someone resilient, someone um, able to see life differently in a way, or, or at least different to what think of your priorities not saying real prioritize but think of your priorities what what has it meant to actually uh for you to to be a working mother in all this a working acad uh, sorry, an academic mother is it do you think has has influenced part of your um you know your own outlook to your scholarship or the way you manage the way you deal with people yeah it's interesting um I think from my discipline side, I'd read all those models with Heather about women's employment, but it wasn't until I had Hannah that I realised what that meant. <laughs> so I used to say, well, that's a nice variable, I'll stick in the childcare. But until I had Hannah, I didn't know what that meant. I really didn't know what that meant. And now I can put the story behind the numbers in a way that I couldn't do before. So I think from that literature, that literature of being a working mother, isn't real for you until you are one. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's true of all aspects of life. I don't understand what it's like at the moment to look after an elderly parent. That time will come, but I don't know at the moment. I don't know what it's like to have a disabled child. I don't know what it's like to be BME or, you know, all kinds of things. So I think the reason we need diversity in the discipline of economics is that I can't conceptualize that in my model unless I've lived it. And I think that that's what that showed me. Um, the practicalities are different. I used to be able to sit before Hannah um, in the office. I would get in. I'm not an early riser, so I'd probably take the motorbike in. So the motorbike's gone. I'd take the <laughs> motorbike into CLS, into the IOE, and get there for about 10, have an extended lunch, probably stay till 7, turned back on the motorbike, 
I'm very lucky I have a husband that cooks, who like to cook. So enjoy some time with him into the late night and off we go again. Whereas once I had Hannah, the, for a start, the motorbike had to go. So the public transport became more complicated. The yeah. travel became more complicated. I had to think about the extra loop of where she was going, what she was doing on top of where I was going. And even with a very supportive husband, it meant that there was no way I could pull that sort of time. So time becomes a precious commodity. And it's why someone, another mentor of mine, John Vorhaus, said the best time to write is before the day gets into your mind. So I now do my writing in the early morning from seven, from six now, but they've gone back to school today. So from six, before I wake them up. Because once I've opened my mind to something else, I've lost those thoughts. And I have to do my writing before I open the email, because otherwise, once I open the email, head of department will flood in here. And it's easy to do head of department mm. stuff, teaching stuff, but it's not easy to do thinking. So it's finding mm. the space. Where mm. do you find that space? When she was little, I did all my writing at night. I remember joking with people, I put her asleep at 10 o'clock at night and write till one in the morning because that worked for me when she was little. But once school came along, late nights couldn't work. Um, and that changes every stage she grows when I can write changes I'm now finding once my youngest Sarah went to primary school um, that was like a big release um, mm -hmm. and that's when I was able the year after I became professor I think I just said well then I'm in school now oh I've got gap my turn <laughs> 10 to 3 10 till 3 I've got space what yeah, am I going to do with like, this yeah. <laughs> a gift a gift <laughs> and so I decided okay, I'm going to look good to be professor and I'm going to push for that um mm -hmm. and I guess the next step is the second Martha was go to secondary school this year and so the youngest is now just left right infants she's in the juniors so as they're growing I'm getting more space and that's something we see commonly in the literature on the female academic careers is that we don't peak. We peak later than they do, the guys, particularly mm -hmm. if we're mothers. There's a delayed peak. The guys tend to peak early and then spend a long time coasting. Um, we seem to take longer to get to the peak. And I do. And I really feel that at the moment, as if I'm coming up to this peak, that as, they, as they're becoming more independent and less needing of me in terms of time, not in terms of other things, but in terms of time, I'm all of a sudden able to do things I couldn't dream of doing 10 years ago um, when they were yeah. small. Yeah, very, uh, that's very interesting because um, this that directly influenced on the gender pay gap because uh, if, for example, we uh, access the uh, senior levels of the career uh, five, ten years later, that means that our male uh, colleagues, counterparts, have already been on a professorial salary for five, ten years, which means we'll never catch up. It's just not absolutely impossible for us to catch up. And there's always the the objective reason, of course, they've been there for five years longer. They've been in X and Y committee. They've been um, and and then it's just it. That's why it's called a gap. <laughs> it's no way to bridge the gap. It's so big. You don't have a bridge uh, big enough uh, if we have if we don't look at those uh, structural um, issues that take us to objective situations in which obviously we are uh, behind obviously we still don't have this experience obviously we don't because we we just 
have had to do it differently to what is the the uh, applauded mainstream, the the considered the way it should be, which is um, uh, you know working really 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 hard in your thirties and uh, and producing like crazy and uh, going to every committee and all that, and by your forties you got there, <laughs> whilst by our forties we're still. It's still, um, in, in my case, uh, change, was changing nappies and uh, and trying to get to a committee at the same time. So, um, so now, uh, Denise, you are now head of school. So you are now in a position that um, uh, were uh, apart from managing a lot of uh, um, uh, issues such as where do students sit in a classroom when they have to social distance, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, whether um, you're going to have to. I don't know, do all the appraisals in a system that keeps them crashing down. Um, you have the, the capacity um, to intervene in, uh, to some extent into these career choices of um, some of the, uh, of the people of your department. I guess you also have uh, the, the uh, responsibility of being a role model to the females in your department, because um, this is something that I keep on saying, and particularly in my department, there are uh, three male professors and one female professor. And and when we always say, oh, you know, why do women, we're going to have to flag the female role models so much. It's like, well, our male, my male colleagues have three people to look up to. They can have three different models of how to be a professor. Whilst our female uh, colleagues only have me, which is a very imperfect model. <laughs> but um, uh, so it's not so much that, um, you know, one, the, I think there's a big responsibility from the female um, academics to actually be this role model that you're constantly thinking you're not living up to. So that's that feel from, a, from a, as well being the most senior female uh, in your department at the moment. I'm very, very lucky, and I, I say that frequently, but so the Royal Economic Society every year does a kind of an audit of females in academia, and uh, Greenwich consistently hits highest levels of proportion of female professoriate. So at the moment, we've got three female professors in my department to five professors in total. So we actually outnumber the guys, which is really unusual. Um, and it's it's really something to celebrate because it doesn't happen often, particularly in economics. I don't think there's many departments of economics that can say that they've got more than 50% female professoriate. What that does mean, though, is that I think it's really important, and you said that, but it's really important to be downward looking as a professor. So I, I kind of taken those words on um, but another mentor of mine my last line manager Martin Oliver at UCL Institute of Education said that being a leader was about defining spaces for others to grow into that's what he said to me and I really think that that's really important that we somehow need to shift academia away from the I promoting people who are really good at I me I led the papers, I did this, to people who look out for others. And I think if we don't start to change promotion criteria and other things that make people look downwards, we're always going to perpetuate this same cycle. So that kind of nudge, celebrating a great department is great, and I'm very lucky. 
but how do we make it even greater because it doesn't work for everyone and so it kind of pushed me into doing an, an EDI audit a quality diversity and inclusion audit for the department on pay and promotion so this time last year I sought permission from the department to look at the HR data I worked with Nazir in um, HR and we looked at the numbers and it's shocking and this is a department with 60% female professoriate and yet you've got men going up the salary scales at two to three year splits and you've got women going up there at four to five years and if you look at it by BAME staff, BAME staff are going up there at 12 year splits. So this is you know we can say this is a lovely department and I'm very you know and, and they're great but something isn't right when people are getting stuck and so we've started working with my deputy TESPA we have pushing to do one of these um, arts and humanities research councils got a call out for EDI fellowships so I've kind of pushed him and he's done it and it will go in this week um, we're applying for an EDI fellowship and I think we just want to talk about this now. It's what was really lovely was this is a department where I could present those numbers. Of course, they knew that that was coming, but it was still a shock to them. And then the important bit is, well, it's no good shocking people if we've not got a plan B. So what? Mm -hmm. And the so what is that we've gone with distributed leadership. I've got split the um, mentoring and the line management across the department, which is unique in the business school. And now I'm including in people's appraisals, those who do line manage, some kind of ambition for their line management, who they line manage. So what do you want for them? Because your mm. line management, that's a big of your job. What do you want for the people you line manage? Um, and, you know, it's not, we need to start to put we back into academia. I don't think it's ever been there, by the way. I think that that's back into might be the wrong way, but um, yeah. we need to put it in. It needs to, yeah. you know, we we talk about teamwork for research. We talk about team teaching, we, but we don't have that in our promotion criteria. All the promotion criteria says I, yeah. and there's something yeah. not quite right there. That's yeah, that's very interesting. Well, the the figures are are absolutely shocking. I mean, uh, but I think the exercise is fantastic because what we need is transparency what we need is to have the uh, to understand what the situation is how are we going to change the situation we don't understand we vaguely assume that this is what's happening but we need to know the numbers we need to know how much it is that our male counterparts earns more than you a year and it should not be shameful to say to ask excuse me, do you earn 30,000 more than I do? Which is in one particular case, that is a real case. Um, uh, so I think, I, I mean, I praise you and I absolutely, uh, as you know, I've been trying really hard for this to happen at a university-wide level. And I know it's, you know, difficult times now with COVID and everything, but we can't, we need to do it. The, the whole new normal is not a new normal. It's a new reality and the new reality has to have the priorities right and the priorities have to be for equal treatment and everybody being recognized equally so i am i am blown away by uh, what you're doing in the in the school and uh, some of the um, some of the things that you mentioned this distributive leadership and this taking responsibility over the people you manage is not so much i think these loose concepts of mentoring as if the mentor 
the mentor is kind of left alone. You can do whatever you want. Is they have a coffee once in a while if you like the person, and if not, just tell them where they can find things in the portal and in the internal website. Or something is something that is not enough. But how do you how do you manage with the um, uh, some something that uh, women tend to uh, have, or at least it's a bit of a stereotype of women needing to be liked? How does uh, one manage from a, a position of power, not a power of of you know decision maker, in which you have to say to people, "Well, actually, this is the way we're going to do this because I." believe uh, this is the right way and I'm actually the one in the in the in the chair where decisions are made at this point it's interesting because I've had those conversations in the faculty um state <laughs> that that's why I was smiling when you said it um I do think that being liked is not the right phrase people use that with me as a weapon you know Denise you're not in that job to be liked well I'm not in this job to be hated either um but the bit that's interesting to me is that people will actually my department I think they're stunning I say it all the time I think they're stunning and they've pulled miracles in the last year particularly we had for example we have two really large january start programs both of which had a term three delivery so whilst everyone else was worrying about exams and getting exams done online we were delivering to about four to five hundred students online before anyone had even thought about blended by design and they did it and it wasn't me that did it they did it because they did it because we were transparent so i think this notion that I want to be liked, which is why I tell everybody what's going on, is nonsense. People can't make informed decisions without information. We learn that from my discipline, economics. The best decisions come when people have information. They cannot make good choices in anything unless they have information. So I'm, I've got a bit of a bugbear about this, but people always say that, you, you know, Denise, you do things to be liked. It's not to be liked team have done things they don't like but they will only do things they don't like when they understand what it is I'm asking and why I'm asking it and more importantly why I believe that's important and I struggle the other way around and I I, I know John struggles uh, John and I don't have an easy relationship and it's because I need that from him so I've always been fortunate I think to have before coming back to Greenwich, line managers that have always been open for that transparency. And I've been lucky with many of the people who've line managed me in the past. And I think what I struggle with is when you don't have that transparency. It's not because I think I know everything. I'm sure that's how it comes over. I do come over as a bit aggressive or whatever, as the words that have been used with me before. Um, but I need to understand why. And if you can't tell me why, then I don't see why I should do it. I need to understand the values and the motivation. And I think what I've learned as head of department is if I can project those values and that motivation, that actually the team is very capable of doing everything. They are very, very capable people. Um, so our, in one of my first tasks as head of department, um, I reached out to the other professors and said, this is what I think from reading the website and my history at Greenwich before I was when I was here before that I think it's a sort of a vision statement what do you think I took their ideas to amend it I ran it past the SMT of um, department and we have a vision statement we now have on adverts 
And it's all about us being an inclusive, diverse community who love economics and just want to share that with everyone. I mean, there's fancier words to it than that, but that's basically what it says. And we want to reach people who maybe never thought of economics before. And we want to show them why it's such a wonderful subject. And I think if we can pitch vision, then people will know whether they want to follow or whether they don't like the vision and they think they want to go somewhere else. And that's also their choice. Um, but we don't, I don't see being liked. The liked is something that I'm accused of. It's not about being liked. It's just being transparent. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason to be scared of it. And I'm very proud of you, Olga, because I think it took great courage to email and say, let's have some transparency on wages. And when we don't see that, the question is, is why not? Because that shows something about your values and maybe we're not comfortable with those values. So, mm -hmm. you know, transparency and being often appears to be like being liked, but it's not being liked. It's just being honest. That, that is, is very good to hear. And thank you very much. It's um, it, it's interesting when I, uh, you know, took the decision to do those things and keep on sending emails. And I, I you know, I did think about that. Do I, um, are these, um, uh, you know, the, the people who have the decision making going to like me for doing this? So it was the other way around instead of like people who maybe I manage and, and things like that. Uh, would they like me? It's like, it, are the people um, above me uh, going to like me? Are they going to think, oh, here she is, this <laughs> pain in the neck woman. Here she is again with the email about when are we going to do the gender pay gap? Because there have been several other emails in which not everybody's copied in. But uh, so, so together with the ones you've seen, there's been some others, but, um, yeah, so I did think about that, uh, uh, quite, uh, a little bit, especially because we had a new, um, uh, senior management team and I thought, well, these, these people are going to come in thinking, oh, here's the, here's the, here's the woman is always complaining about something. Uh, but to be honest, through my career, I've always been the, the, little compliant girl i've always been very much the okay fine uh, more photocopies sure sure <laughs> okay uh shall i i'll write it okay no i'll do it i'll, I'll be part of that commission uh, uh who's me which meetings takes five hours etc and um and i you know maybe it was a bit empowered by by feeling a bit more comfortable now with being a professor i'd been a professor for like uh, nearly two years or maybe a bit less and also very empowered with the the female the other female professors i i saw you i looked at you i i and i thought i want to be like them i want to be part of that group but it's not a group so let's make it a group <laughs> and um and now i want uh, to be part of this group that is actually equally paid <laughs> as all our male colleagues so so for me it's it's a great inspiration that's why i wanted us to meet more often i i want to know you because i think you know you are uh, the people i aspire to be like i i've just arrived <laughs> in a way so um it's 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 great to hear you talk and, and hear the things that are happening and that you are a uh, leader in it so so what's next denise what's next now in terms of uh, uh um, you know we, we have a super challenging time for both for personally for all of us for the institution for the students for our own children and our own uh, uh, you know um, 
mental health have been stuck in the house with our lovely partners, which um, I see much longer for <laughs> 24 hours a day. Uh, well, what is next for your discipline, for your faculty and for yourself? Yeah, well, I think I've been really um, happy to become the Royal Economic Society's first chair of the Education and Training Committee. Fantastic. Um, I didn't actually expect to get it. Um, I'm very grateful to Denise Osborne. In fact, I was telling her at my first TUDE meeting, Heads of Departments meeting, that she's been the name that I've been following a whole career because, of course, she's Denise like me. And I've, the fact that I could actually see her and meet her means so much. Um, and, and it's really lovely to work with her to build this committee for the Royal Economic Society. So I think that in terms of discipline, but also for me, I'm really keen on that space where economics does more than just build some clever mathematical models. The mathematical models are incredibly important and absolutely fascinating, but we need to do more in terms of reaching out. And that's where education and training comes in. Um, we, we reach people with our discipline by through education. So that's the big adventure for me in the discipline space. And I'm really pleased to be given that chair and that opportunity. It's interesting because we're scoping out something that's never existed before. We'll see where it leads, but it's a, I love something that's new and doesn't, and needs creating rather than I, you know, I get accused of that a lot, but I, I do find rules constraining. Um, I think in my kind of my own research space, for me, we're setting up merit, which is measuring education's real impact from innovative teaching, very long name, Merit Hub. And it's been set up originally to evaluate the APP plan, which is our access and participation plan. And I was lucky before Christine um, retired, Christine Cooper, to work with Christine to get Merit Hub working. So it's access to the university data and to evaluate the things we do to see what matters to the students that matter to the APP. So students who are not middle-class white males, basically. And um, Merit's really exciting. So I think that that's the focus for me. I do have one more year as head of department in my current term. That's a three-year term. I don't know that I'm keen to keep it. Let's see how Merit goes. And then we'll decide whether I still got capacity or whether I still have to have BAW points, as we say at Greenwich a lot, BAW points. <laughs> yes. um, but I think for me, the merit is the thing. I want to, you know, we invest a lot of money, for example, in something like studiosity. Does it make a mm -hmm. difference? I mean, anecdotally, we can say it does, but do we have the evidence? And I'd really like the merit hub to use in the secondary data to show that those things do make a difference. And where they don't, let's use mm -hmm. it to invest better in what does make a difference for our students, whoever they may be. Um, so yeah, that's sort of direction travel. Let's see how this year goes as head of department. I may be exhausted mm. after the COVID started. <laughs> but it seems it's the most difficult year there. probably. Oh no, the first was the hardest. You know, oh, okay. our department has had a shock every year, student numbers uh -huh. exploding and all kinds of things. So I think let's see how it goes, but I, I would like to get a hand it off to someone else and focus on the merit in the medium term. So I think that that's where I'm heading. Um, and the reason why merit matters is it, it kind of brings together all the things I learned in economics, but also the things I learned while I was at the IRE, Institute of Education, about the fact that teachers matter. 
And the one thing COVID has really shown all of us is how much teachers matter. You know, they Definitely. matter. They could send you what you like in homeschooling, yes. in the email. But I don't know why this sheet has got lots of different pictures and what you want the child to do with it. I have no idea exactly. I'm an intelligent human being. Teachers matter. Yeah. But what we Definitely. want to do is be able to demonstrate that they matter. And I think we can do that with merit. So we really want to show that, you know, the quality of what we provide matters. Um, on the person's face, thankfully, three children in the ref cycle was enough. Not keen on any more of those. Um, getting old enough now to be able to say that with confidence. Um, but I think, you know, the transitions for them become interesting. They're going to secondary school. Um, what does it look like when they finish secondary school? I don't know. And just wanting to be here. One of the things that I think that COVID's given me that I wouldn't have had otherwise is time at home. And I think we get wrapped up in running around campus. We can do all of this online. And actually, it's given me time with them. And they're the best people to hang out with. So my husband and the three girls, it's been a pleasure to be locked down with them. Honestly, a pleasure. We've had some great fun. And it was hard today to see Sarah go back to school. It will be harder mm. tomorrow when the other two go back. Um, mm -hmm. But it will give me the brain space to take on the challenge for the department, mm. get the timetable right, um, <laughs> all, the other, all the other things that have got to happen in the next 10 days. And um, hopefully we can, you know, support colleagues to do the next lot of Mission Impossible, which is a blended by design delivery that, to be honest, they've had to learn over the summer. And I have great respect for them as academics, but they've worked really hard, all academics. But, you know, I know that my team has worked really hard since we've been in lockdown and, and in preparation for the term come in. And really, my job is just to make sure that they're OK so that they can deliver this. If they're, they're OK, if they're comfortable, if they're confident, then this is going to be fine. But my job as head of department is to be looking out for them. And mm. hopefully they then look out for our students. That's great. That it's one of one of the things that I don't miss is get out getting out of the door in the morning. I I remember uh, I've told my husband it's like we used to be these people that were very stressed at seven thirty yeah. in the morning because we needed to be out the door by seven forty five, dressed and with a child and a packed lunch. And this is something that actually I think my family is a happier family because we, we're not pushing each other out the door. But uh, there have been other challenges, obviously. Well, Denise, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think uh, you've, um, you're doing a, a really amazing uh, work, at, uh, very inspiring and, and definitely very inspiring for people like me. And I wish you all the luck with a, with a crazy year. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's a learning experience. We're learning, uh, I, I guess, in the past three years and the next three years that are coming we're going to learn more than the other generations in decades so um good luck with the return to to campus of the students and to the teaching and uh i'll see you at the next female professoriate thanks all good it's been lovely to talk to you today